this morning, what we're going to talk about in a, in a lot of ways is education, but um, more specifically, the college that, that we're kind of walking into and starting here. And so I want to give you just a little background on that, and then we'll kind of move in. But for a long time, there's been a school in Central Oregon. For about a decade, it began as Central Oregon Bible Institute, which was called Kobe. And the whole idea of Kobe was that this side of the Cascades, there's really nothing in the way of adult education. So if you really want to get theology or, or training in how to read your Bible or something like that, there was nothing this side of the Cascades. And so Kobe kind of started to meet that need. After a number of years, it became High Desert Christian College. And the goal of High Desert Christian College was to become a full-on regular um, liberal arts, I don't know what you call it, uh, college, Christian college. And that went for a number, number of years, but it's just really hard to get something like that started if you're trying to do business and marketing and, and all these other things kind of uh, on top of the Christian subjects. And so after a while, they downshifted to doing adult education again and then pursued getting state authorization as a Bible college um, at a one-year, two-year level instead of trying to go to a full, um, full-on liberal arts school. And so they spent a whole year, uh, tons of time, building with the state all the things, that, all the pieces that were necessary, this was uh, a year ago, to get approval to, to grant uh, a college um, one-year, two-year kind of diploma in biblical studies. And so when they came to the end of that, they basically said, hey, this, we've pursued all this, put all this time and energy into this, and we've got it to this far, but our goal is to reach college-age students and affect the next generation um, on a national level, and we just don't know we can do that. And so last December, kind of out of the blue, uh, they called us into a board meeting and said, you know, we've kind of been told about Antioch, we've been told about what you guys are doing, we've been told about like just the gifts that you guys have and the strengths and uh, who you're reaching, and the idea kind of came up, what if the school was put under your umbrella and you guys took it and, and ran with it, um, what would you think about that, what would that look like? And it kind of took us way off guard. And so we said, well, we don't know. Um, we'll think about it, pray about it. We'll tell you if we could do that and what that would look like. So pulled away, elders talked about it. And basically we went back and said, hey, we'd take the school under the condition that we would switch out the board of directors and we'd completely tear it down to the, the, the foundation and then build it back up kind of as a school of theology and missions. And we'll talk about that later, what that would mean. And, and they heard the vision, they got excited about the vision, they said, um, that sounds great. And so basically handed the, the college over to us, uh, High Desert Christian College, and then it's kind of gone from December till now through a couple phases as we're moving it along. So that's kind of just the background of what's going on, and then we'll flesh it out more uh, as we get into things. But I want to talk more at a philosophical level first about uh, a word. A word. And words are an interesting thing. I love naming things. Um, anyone else out there just love naming things? Like I'd have, an, I'd have another half dozen kids just so I could name them. Um, but I think the fourth one, by the way, if you don't know, like the fourth one that we're expecting is another girl. So four girls. Um, so I have this pressure with naming them because when they're junior hires, they're going to get mad at me. Whatever I name them, it's not going to be the right name, you know. Come junior high, Dad, how come you didn't name me something cooler? Um, anyways, I love naming things. I love words. 
Here's a, a fun thing that I love, and that's oxymorons. Does anyone else like those? Oxymorons are like two words that kind of just play against each other, like Microsoft works, you know. Um, <laughs> military intelligence, um, the Salvation Army, you know. I mean, did you ever really think about that? Um, and then the, the religious ones I like are Progressive Baptists. There's actually a denomination called Progressive Baptists. And then, you might not get this one, but I think it's funny, Orthodox Presbyterians. Um, but words are, words are kind of a fun thing. And here's, here's a word that has lost its meaning. A word that has lost its meaning, and, and so I'll show you. Here, here it is. Bam. Isn't that a pretty word? I mean, doesn't that just get your heart racing? Like, you know, your blood pressure goes up. Someone's just going to jump up and pump a fist and yell amen because it's the most exciting word ever. It's just not. Like, it's like the the boringest word ever in the English language. You know, we just, you're like waiting for the next slide, aren't you? There's tension in the room and it's palpable. And so we're going to leave that word there for like the next 10 minutes. But... I'm trying to prove my point here. Education, this word, just has no meaning to us. And I'm going to try and explain why it has no meaning. It's a, it's a word that's lost its meaning. Here's the definition of the word education. There's two, and the first one's simply this. The act or process of imparting or acquiring general knowledge, developing the powers of reasoning and judgment, and generally of preparing oneself or others intellectually for mature life. Okay, it's a broad thing, um, a broad definition of growing into and being mature for life. Okay, being prepared for a, a life well lived, what the ancients would call the good life. The more common definition is is the second one, and it's this: the act or process of imparting or acquiring particular knowledge or skills. As for a profession, as for a profession, the, the word education has gotten to be linked with the word schooling in their synonymous words. When we think education, what do you think? You think school, primary education, or secondary education, or elementary school, or high school, or maybe even college, and you think of a formal setting where you go to school, and that's what education means to us, right? And so what's happened because of that is that the word education has lost its meaning. There's been an explosion of, of higher education in the last 50, 60 years. You could take it back even further to the time of the Civil War and kind of move it along. But certainly in the last 50 or 60 years, even in the United Nations uh, in 1952, they made it an article that basically says um, all the signing parties are guaranteeing the right to education um, for the youth. I'm sorry, 1952 was the European Convention. That's why you write things down. 1966, Article 13 in the United Nations' International Covenant said all of these parties, these nations that are coming together, have to guarantee the right of education at least up until kind of the teenage years. Um, That's a right that everybody has. And what happens when you get something cheaply or for free? When it becomes common, yeah. When it becomes common and all around you and all pervasive and it's just a part of culture, you begin to ignore it and take it for granted. 
when you used to have to really work hard to get into a position where you could be educated or to pay for it. It's a fascinating thing as a church. If you do a program and you make it free, nobody will come. If you charge 25 bucks, you'll double up. <laughs> it's just weird. People like, there's value if I pay money. If I don't pay money, there really must not be any value to what I'm going to go to. And so I'll just do something else with my time. And so we take it for granted. So recently, with the kind of explosion of education, formal education, in most first world countries, it's kind of become a common thing. And so we take it to mean schooling, and then it's lost its meaning. It's lost its meaning. Another way of saying it would be this. It has become, the word education has become a word of utility, not of meaning. It's become a word of utility, not of meaning. Basically, it's like the, when you go to Target and you get the, the furniture. You know the, the Target kind of furniture? It's not real wood and it's not pre-assembled. And, and you open the box and there's that little wrench in there. And, and it comes kind of standard with it. And you use it. And what do you do once you've put together that desk or that bookshelf? You just throw it away. It came with it, it had a function, it had utility to use it to get to your goal or or this accomplished end. And once you arrived there, you throw it away. And so education or schooling is now seen as the, the thing that has utility when you're pursuing a vocation. When you're pursuing a career, as, as you go down this road towards success and finances and stabilizing your future, and once you graduate college and you get into your career or your vocation, that little tool is thrown away. It had utility while you were trying to arrive somewhere, like a bridge, but once you're on the other side, you're done with it, you no longer have need for it. And so it's a boring word because it doesn't have any inherent meaning. It has utility. Now, this is so different than the way, the way education and other similar words were used for hundreds of years, even thousands of years. And uh, before we do that, Mark Twain quote, because it's whenever you can quote Mark Twain, you should. Um, this is what Twain says. I've never let my schooling interfere with my education. I've never let my schooling interfere with my education. Education isn't something that's supposed to just have utility It's supposed to have meaning in it. And so let's go all the way back to ancient Greece and the beginning of kind of philosophy and and education and the whole Western tradition. And here's a couple things we want to pull out just because it'll help us frame it. Now, they had a different view of happiness than we have. It wasn't until the last hundred years or so that the word happiness came to mean just raw pleasure. Even Thomas Jefferson, when he said, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was saying that you're unencumbered to pursue the kind of life that would bring happiness. And for him, that meant a life of intellectual pursuit and virtue. And he was quoting almost directly John Locke, the English philosopher, almost directly his views on government. And the whole idea here is that you shouldn't have anything, tyranny, that would prevent you from pursuing the, the higher forms of life and virtue that that would enslave you because you need those things in order to reach happiness. Even the Christians, like Augustine said, all things aim at happiness. Epicurious, uh, Epicurean philosophy, when we we kind of like tag it with eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you you die, and we think Epicurean philosophy as opposed to Stoicism, um, the Epicureans were, were just hedonists. Raw hedonist, that's kind of like the way we think about it. But Epicurus, he, 
even Saul, that to have happiness and to have pleasure, you had to have a virtuous life. And so for, for most of intellectual history, happiness was on the other side of this path where you had to grow into the good life. The, the good and the true and the beautiful, becoming the right kind of person, put together in the right kind of way, that you would have this virtue and like a machine, you would learn to function well with other people and your surroundings. And when you learn to function well that way, you would then be able to have a higher degree of happiness. Okay, that's a different view of happiness, isn't it, than ours? Our view of happiness is I've got these raw desires and if I'll just fill them, I'll be happy. And it leads to what's called the hedonist paradox. The the hedonist paradox is that if you just sit there and you're a glutton on pleasure, the things that are supposed to satisfy these desires actually leave you empty and not finding happiness. It's called the hedonist paradox. But for, for most of the intellectual history, the history of ideas, happiness was on the other side of virtue. And so you had to grow into it. You had to grow into it. Therefore, the educated person had a greater chance at happiness than, than the non-educated person. So education had meaning. With spiritual growth, it's the same thing. Up until recently, spirituality was something that you grew in. You grew, just like virtue, you grew in your, your knowledge, you grew in your ability, you grew in spiritual disciplines, your aptitude to be a certain kind of person or related to God in a certain kind of way or the ability to deny yourself in a certain way, you grew spiritually. In the last 15 years, that word spiritual growth, that phrase spiritual growth, has been replaced by a different English word. Does anyone have an idea what it is? Spirituality. Spirituality. So it used to be spiritual growth because the happiness and the blessed life was on the other side of this. So in, in, in the scriptures, you always see these commandments. Do this and you'll be blessed. Don't do this and there's curses. And so you grow spiritually and then there's blessing that comes. If you don't grow spiritually and you walk away from it, there's curses, the wrong kind of life. And so this was always the view. And lately now the, the language is spirituality. What's the difference? Spirituality, just like our view, happiness now, where you just sit and you don't go anywhere. You don't grow. You don't do anything. You just sit there. Spirituality now is that word. There's no objective truth out there, so there's nothing to grow into. But hey, I'm a spiritual person. Hey, I I have a lot of spirituality. And basically what that means is I, I I like to sit there and just ooze. I'm very... I'm very emotive as a person. I, I just, I, it's spiritual. And it's like a substitute for just feeling deeply. But there's no growth to it because it aims at nothing. There's nothing required. And so even in the spiritual circles, we don't have any use for the word education. Education only has utility if it's reaching a goal. Um, if it's just its own thing, but we don't need it, it has no meaning. So we ooze. And and so our culture has become all about the external because if you're sitting somewhere and you don't need to grow to be happy and you don't need to grow to be spiritual, then everything becomes about the urgent, the external, the masks, the image, because we're just static. And that's kind of where we're at. Now, how does that apply to church? 
You know, seriously, like what does that have to do with church and what does that have to do with a college? It has everything to do with it. And I've been learning it more and more since last December as we've kind of gone on this journey. And the first thing is, is just this question, what is the need for Kilns College? Because I think most of us would sit there and say, what is the need for education and even more specifically, a, a Christian college that we're doing here in Bend, Oregon? What's the need? Because we don't have to go anywhere. And I think the first reason there's a need is simply this, as I've looked at it, um, is it Jesus didn't plant a church. He didn't plant a church. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm a church planter, and so you get into arguments with other church pastors and, and planters and things like that. And everyone has a model of how they view church. Everyone has a model and kind of ideas about programs and teaching and music and services and, and community. Everyone has a model, and you want your model to be right because that's just how we are, right? We're competitive. And so my model's better than your model, and my, my, you know, my mom can beat up your mom. And, and so whenever you're with a bunch of pastors, you argue about models of church. Now, how do you win in that argument? Everyone knows how you would win in that, that argument about what's the right way to do church. Here's, here's the trump card. If you can say, this is how Jesus did it, then you win. Right? Now, here's the, the hard part to that is the frustrating part to that is all church planters know that you can't do that. You can't say this is how Jesus would do church because Jesus didn't really do church. And it's kind of like frustrating. And so you kind of just stay away from it. And we all kind of know Jesus didn't do church, but we haven't analyzed it beyond that. Jesus didn't uh, set up a synagogue. He didn't stay at a synagogue or in one little community and build up that one little community the way you would if you were doing church. Jesus didn't do church. Well, that's confusing, right? Because isn't he the cornerstone of the church? Jesus didn't do church. I think he, and this is the thing I've realized in, in the last six months or so, Jesus did something more profound and sequentially prior to church. Jesus started a school. Jesus started a school. He set himself up as a teacher. He, he went and found himself students in, in the school model of that day, the Jewish model of disciple maker, rabbi, teacher, with his, with his students that went around and learned from the master, the teacher. He set up a Jewish school. He didn't set up a church. Now let me give you a couple of things here by way of that. Jesus as a teacher Matthew 8.19 says this, Then a teacher of the law, a Jewish teacher of the law, came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So you have teachers, you know, and there's pride about your own job, your own position, right? Your own kind of category. So you've got a teacher coming to Christ and saying, Teacher. And Jesus himself says this in Matthew 26.18. He says, Go into the city to a certain man. This is when they're going to do the Last Supper. And he says, tell the man this, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. So go find a man, and the way I want you to talk to him or introduce me is to say, the teacher, meaning me. In John 13, 13 through 14, Jesus says this, you call me teacher and Lord. So he, he specifies right there. He says to his disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. For that is what I am. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. So there's an interesting relationship that's set up. Jesus is a teacher and these disciples as formal disciples, and it's a school-type system. Listen to what it says in uh, the dictionary, the, the Greek dictionary of the New Testament. Kittle says this, The emphasis is not so much on the incompleteness or even deficiency of education as on the fact that the one thus designated as a learner, as a disciple, is engaged in the learning. That is, education consists in the appropriation or adoption of specific knowledge or conduct. And then here's the important part. And that that knowledge or conduct, that learning, proceeds deliberately and according to a set plan. There is no mathetes uh, without a didask, um, didaskalos. This is Greek there. Um, mathetes is a disciple. Didaskalos is a teacher. So when it says Jesus is a teacher, that's didaskalos. So there is no mathetes disciple without a didaskalos teacher. Jesus set up a school. So how does that look? How do we frame that? Why did Jesus set up a school? Why didn't he just plant a church? And I think the analogy that the best conveys that for me as I've thought through this is that schooling and education, formal training, is like roots to a tree. And that the tree is church, and that's kind of what it's about. But without the roots feeding into it, without the foundation like going into that main structure, um, you can't have it or it certainly can't be healthy. So Jesus knew that, so he, he did a school, and that f- uh, flowed into the church. Now, I'd take the illustration even farther and say that tree then goes into fruit and gives out. So you have roots, then you have the trunk of the tree, and then you have fruit that gives out. And the fruit is a lot like missions. It's, it's how we go and bear fruit. The church is supposed to go and impact and do and have a mission and a purpose in this world to change, to multiply and that's the fruit. So you kind of have three parts to it. Does that make sense? So here's what happens today. Not only has education flourished in the last 50 or 60 years, but it's been the, it's been the explosion of what's called the parachurch movement. So after World War II, you have uh, this whole generation of, of uh, teenagers. Do you know that the word teenager was coined during World War II? All the men went off, and in World War II, women were working in factories. And who's the consumer group? It's basically this teen generation. And so the marketers needed a way to like talk about that. What is that group? And they coined the word teenager during World War II. And it stuck, and teenagers have kind of been the dominant um, economic category for marketers ever since. But, but here's this idea, you know, coming out of World War II, everything else is being targeted to teens. And so you see the beginning of Youth for Christ, where Billy Graham started. And you see the beginning of all these other parachurch movements that are saying, we're going to aim at a specific target. Church, you do discipleship, you do the trunk the colleges, Christian colleges and universities, they'll do the, the roots. And we're going to lop off the top, the fruit part. And we're going to do that over here. And we're going to target evangelism. And we're going to specifically go after like the certain generations. And so we're going to call that parachurch, which means alongside church. So church got broken up. This tree got broken up into the fruit. And then the trunk. And then colleges are going to do the root over here, the training. And so what's left to church in the middle? Programs. 
We get together as community. We sing songs. And we do programs. And over here, the parachurch movement, they're going to reach the lost. And then there's this real disconnect. So someone's like, okay, I believe in Jesus. And then they come into church and they're singing Kumbaya. And they're like, that doesn't feel anything like this Billy Graham rally over here. And then you've got people over here that are in the educational system coming to church, don't understand that culture, and you've kind of got it fragmented. So you've got the roots and the tree and the fruit over here. And it's something that was always meant to be organic. The, the, the call of the church was always supposed to be to raise people up into a body that would then send them out on mission for God in the world. To train people up, like Jesus did, into the church that would be healthy, and then as a part of a healthy church, would send them out to go bear fruit. And we kind of fragmented this whole thing. So where does that leave us? Um, It leaves us in kind of a weird position as church. And so when we kind of analyze Antioch or another church, we say, what's our calling? What are we supposed to do? Now I'll talk about a few things, and this is just side note, cultural analysis stuff, and you don't have to agree with me, but as I look at my own generation, here's some of the things that are going on. Um, We are so far out on the missions side of things, the mission side of things, the the doing, the fruit, that we don't, my generation, we don't even value church, let alone Christian education. I mean, we're, our toes are hanging off the edge over here. We're so far out there wanting to do what's sexy and what's urgent and what's immediate and what makes us look good and what has to do to our image and what has to do with me as an individual change in the world. We're so far out here that we don't even value church, let alone education. As a matter of fact, in the, in the last 20 years, an interesting phenomenon happened while I was in seminary. The mega churches were doing so much by way of ministry and programming, that they said, hey, these guys that come out of here and they talk theology, they don't really fit, and they don't know how to do, like, program ministry. They don't know how to take high schoolers and do chubby bunny and shove marshmallows in their face, and and they don't know how to use PowerPoint the way we do PowerPoint and video and all that. And They're irrelevant to us and what we're trying to do ministry-wise. And so the megachurches in the last 15, 20 years started saying, hey, don't go to seminary. If you want to be in ministry, come to us, and then we'll train you as interns, and we'll show you how to do programs right, how to put on a good production, and how to do ministry the way we do ministry. And so you see this huge shift of devaluing education. Just think about how ironic it is. I mean, would the military ever take education out of an ongoing part of what it's doing? I mean, I've been watching on HBO the because we got it free, and then at the end of the month, like, if you call, they'll cancel it, but I just never called, because <laughs> I'm addicted to TV again. Um, that I've been watching this HBO thing on the Cowboys, you know, the Dallas Cowboys, like their training camp. It's crazy how much, ed- they do very little football, and it's like all education, meetings, and training, and breaking things down, and watching videos, and learning as an ongoing thing. No, nothing of value would take education away from the doing, because doing uninformed by education is going to go awry, right? But yet, here in the church, we say, man, let's do away with education, and just focus on the doing. And so all these guys in, in our generation have kind of run into church with no foundation. And it's feeding into what's called the emergent church movement today. And the emergent church movement today, for all of the good doing that it's doing, 
Okay, the missional stuff has very little grounding over here in education and truth. And it says, you know, Paul says to Timothy that elders, and you specifically, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine carefully. Watch your life and your doctrine very carefully. You've got to be grounded and have a foundation if you're going to have a healthy church and then ultimately do missions. Watch your life and your doctrine carefully. All the character traits of an elder, it's... um, it's character, it's the quality of a guy's character, and then that they're able to teach and refute, like teach good doctrine and refute bad doctrine. The, the whole thing is that they're going to be the right kind of people, but that they're grounded and they have knowledge and they have education. And so we've got this whole movement out there that's just unhinged from Bible or the authority of Scripture or the authority of tradition, and it's just focused on results and pragmatism and it calls itself the emergent church. And I look at that and say, man, there's a lot of good things they're doing. But we're so far out on this extreme. We're unhinged from the base. It's why it matters. You begin to see certain mistakes that have happened before and they start to come back around again. And the same kind of thing happened back in the 1920s and 30s. And you see this great move towards just loving on people, yet a move away from any kind of tradition of the scriptures or the authority in the church or sound doctrine and these things have to be put back together again the church has to lead out and say education matters if the next generation is going to do church right if they're going to be informed by sound doctrine and if they're going to really end up doing missions that's going to glorify god because it's the whole package that god cares about it's the whole tree so that's the college idea is we've got to be able to have something in there where we can bring this back together again. And there's the roots that go into the tree that go into the fruit. So what's the purpose and the vision of the college? Um, so I'll give you kind of the mission statement and vision statement. But it's this. Uh, to change the world one student at a time. You don't change the world by throwing money at a problem. I've been researching it and it's, you can't get a good number. But between 450 to 600 billion has been given to Africa since 1960. And, and it's worse off than it was on the economic index than it was in 1960. And so we're all over here saying, let's throw money at a problem because we care. But the truth is, is that corrupt leadership and, and people that abuse power really will always take the money and just divert it to their own ends. And how do you change a culture? You change a culture through education. That's what's fascinating. When I was over there visiting, it's just the movement of leaders, African leaders that are getting into the education thing and saying, I have to reach my own generation and change it if we're ever going to change our country. If you're going to change the world, it can happen through education. It can happen through training. That's how Jesus did it. He was a teacher that changed 12 disciples that changed the face of the world. So we want to change the world one student at a time. By birthing an innovative school model that marries a classical education approach with a missions and social justice focus, attracting Christian college students from around the nation who are passionate and committed to changing the world. Now it brings up the question, Jesus, is this a college just for college students? And the, the model of this school is to basically have a school of, of missions and theology that would actually bring in college students that would take classes and work towards a diploma or transfer credits that move on. I had a slide earlier. I didn't show you. Um, but there's... Kip could maybe go back and find it. But 
Um, there's transfer agreements with a number of Christian colleges that, that have been worked out. The ones on the top where classes that are partnered or the same kind of a class would transfer directly. The ones on the bottom would be open to being petitioned or letting a student test in. So yeah, there's, we're trying to get college students here that would do this. But we also have as a part of that adult education. That people would be able to audit this these classes that in Central Oregon you could go in and you could really focus on a set plan to learn about how to study the Bible or about global missions or about um, different books of the Bible or the history of the church or on and on and on. And so it's not just for college students, it's also for adult education. And there's one other part of that mission statement I want to pull out. And it's this, it's, um, it marries a classical education approach with missions. Now this is huge because it fits this whole organic structure and it's something that in, in modern education has kind of been lost. But it's, it's this idea, the Greeks had this idea that, that there's a telos or a goal or an end for everybody. And so if you see like a screw here, then what are you going to do with this lump of metal? You're going to shape it like a screwdriver. If you see a nail, you're going to shape this lump of metal like a hammer. And so the calling dictates the education. It's not just, I don't know what I'm going to do, so sign me up for business. Great, take these classes on the back end, we'll give you a diploma. But it's really trying to first identify the calling and then saying, we're going to shape your education towards that calling. Jesus did this when he went up to Peter and he said, Peter, follow me and I'll teach you to be a fisher of of men. You're supposed to reach men, and I'm going to shape you and disciple you so that you can do that and accomplish that end or that purpose, that telos, that goal. And so when Jesus leaves, the last thing he says is he changes the metaphor, and he says, feed my sheep. You know, Peter, I just, I just trained you for three years. You can now do, perform this function, answer your calling, go feed my sheep. And so it's kind of the same idea, but really understanding the nature of the person and that shapes the education. So just a little, little background on that. Um, but let's just go into the, the values of the college. And I think it'll flesh out the vision a lot more as we go through it. But what is the idea of Kiln's College? The first thing is this. It's kind of what we were just talking about, but classical. A classical model. I was doing a fundraiser in Prineville. We drove over there and did like an hour talk and kind of Q&A and it was late in the night and we still had to go get the kids at Tamara's sister's house and then drive all the way back and I was exhausted and so after this thing um, this older guy pulls me aside and I was thinking oh no <laughs> not one of these guys you know and I, I kind of knew it was coming but he pulls me aside and he says this he says I can't support this at all he goes you're married to a western educational model that is fundamentally um, different and opposed to the way Jesus trained people up. And he goes, and for 30 years I've been on this, this, this thing about Western education. And he goes, and so he says to me, he says, I've talked to numerous seminary presidents about this. And nobody can give me an answer for, you know, why we've kind of sold ourselves out to this Western model of education that's so diametrically opposed to discipleship. And I kind of looked at my wife. I was thinking maybe I can just say, you know, oh, I'd love to answer that, but I've got to go. <laughs> She's like in the middle of talking to a bunch of people. And so I just kind of said, okay, here we go. Uh, I said, no, you're wrong. Um, you're completely off base. The whole idea is that in the classical model, going all the way back to Aristotle 
in the Lyceum and Plato in the Academy, that you did have a disciple-making teacher, not really focused on buildings, that would walk with students, that would follow him from morning till sundown, learn from his life. It was the whole disciple-coaching kind of thing. In fact, the whole model of interaction um, that Socrates employed, questions and answers and pithy statements that we call the Socratic model, is what a lot of scholars would say Jesus used when he was teaching people. And the Greeks are the Western tradition. And so really here, your problem isn't the Western tradition at all. It's modern education. And modern education is just deficient. It does the formal didactic type of teaching, which comes from didaskalos, teacher, and formal teaching, didactic, which is kind of sitting here preaching at it. And it does that as well as walking through life, taking the little things and applying it. But but see, that was Jesus' thing. In modern education, we just do the classroom, and it's devoid of relationship, and it's not broad enough and encompassing enough, and it doesn't bring in the calling of a person. And I said, so it's deficient. So if we just add with it mentorship, and, uh, and, we're, and I told the guy, we're planning on doing this with college. There's a faculty mentor for every person that's in there as a degree person seeking credits for a class are going to have a faculty mentor. And the first class that every student takes is a class called Personal Calling and Mission so that we identify really who they are and where they're supposed to be going so that we're involved with them. So your problem is modern education because it's deficient. That's really not a problem because we're trying to bring in a classical model that is Western education, which is what you kind of began with. And, and, uh, and he just kind of furrowed his brow and and turned away and walked off, and I just was like, that was so ungratifying that he just walked away. Um, but we got to get back to thinking deeply about these questions and analyzing them and answering them succinctly. And, um, and so we want to do a, a classical model. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Why? Because, you know, this whole debate between didactic kind of lecture style versus walking through life and and not ever teaching anyone, just asking good questions. It's a both and. They're both a part of it. Jesus, if you go through the Gospels, Jesus taught succinct things to people. And then he would walk off with them and he'd break it down and analyze it and interact with them on a relational level. It's a both and and we need them both. So one of the first values is just classical model of education. We're not driven by money. That's the beauty of this kind of college is we're not driven by money. We have no buildings. Uh, We have no history. We get to start from scratch. So we can do it and try and make it fit. The whole idea of the roots flowing into, hopefully, the church that will flow into missions. Second thing is missional. And underneath that, the first thing is this, purposeful, which is education according to a person's gifting and calling. You see, you're not called to conversion. I think the revivalists got this so wrong and it's really thrown us off, but the revivalists for the last hundred years would come and call you to conversion. Come up front and pray this prayer. Um, the band will play and raise your hand and come up here and, and convert. And what they should have been calling people to was mission. You walk up to someone and say, God, God is on mission in this world, the Missio Dei. He's on mission in this world, and he wants you to be where he's at, joining him in what he's doing, and be on mission with God. That, that's God's whole plan. And, and so you need to reject your own ways and your own egocentric kind of life, submit 
turn and join God in this mission that he has for you, that he is calling you to. And in doing that, you have to turn away from the old self. You have to submit to God. All the things that kind of are are spoken of as part of conversion are part of calling people to mission. But I think it's a lot easier to call them to conversion. And we've got to get back to, and I think what's beautiful in this post-Christian nation that we're in, is we can shed some of the ways that we used to do things and go back to doing them the way they were in the New Testament, which is people are called to leave what they're doing, come and follow. Okay, they're called to mission. And so we want to start with where people are at and really call them to mission. It's not about vocation. You can be an artist, you can be an engineer, you can be a dentist, but you do it to the glory of God as a missionary where God has planted you. Missionary isn't just something you go overseas and do. Missionary is being on mission for God where you're at. In Bend, Oregon, Central Oregon, wherever. Mother Teresa said this, I love it. Many people mistake our work for our vocation. Our vocation is the love of Jesus. Our work is being a dentist. There's also going to be overseas missions trips, study abroad opportunities. We've partnered with a school called Eternity Bible College. They've already got three study abroad opportunities, one in Quito, Ecuador, one in Uganda, and one somewhere else, I think in Asia. But they basically said, hey, why don't you partner with us? And then if you want to make that available to your students, they can just go. There's already a place to live. There's already teachers that go with and teach classes while they're down there. And there's already ministries set up on the ground in those places that these students can be involved in. So it's really cool, these study abroad opportunities, as well as a a partnership we're trying to work out with a school in Burundi. Um, And there's a guy by the name of Emmanuel who's who's starting that up, much like ours over here. And hopefully this fall or next winter, Emmanuel will be here for a month, and he's actually going to try to teach a a one-unit class. And we'll have him up here on a Sunday morning, and we'll be able to, to learn through his eyes kind of what he's seeing in the world. Isn't that fun? The cross-pollination that we can get. Sending some of our teachers over there, or our students over there, and potentially bringing some of their students or teachers over here. Um, just seeing where that kind of a partnership would go and, and building this whole thing up from the ground up like that. Uh, the next thing is just economical. The top reason that missions organizations are turning away potential missions candidates these days, I've heard this from two different sources, The top reason that they would say no to somebody that's raising their hand and saying, I'll go overseas as a missionary, is debt load. It's debt load. Someone goes into a Bible college and $100,000 later comes out and they say, I want to be a missionary. And the missions organization is saying, you can't service your debt. There's no way. And so they say no to them. Jesus didn't do it that way. Jesus asked people to give all that they had, not all that they didn't have. He said, give it all away, but he didn't have them put it on credit. And so we want to make this economical so that people can actually get a good, decent Bible education, whether at a lay level or at a student level. It doesn't cost a fortune. The last thing is this. Um, This college is going to be original. There's no rules. We get to just start from scratch and say, how does this organically work into the plan that God, have, God has, and, and see missions as a part of it, see education as a part of it, see the church as a part of it, and try and raise people up so that we can someday send them out and do it organically. We, we can be innovative. The, the question I get when we talk about the college is, people think in terms of Oregon State or Biola University. 
and we're not going to have a cheerleading squad. You know, I mean, if we did, it would probably not be the best looking cheerleading squad ever, but we're not going to, we don't have to copy those things. We get to create. We don't have to follow in the other steps. We don't have to copy. And so we're going to be original. You know, and I learned something about originality when we we planted this church. And it's this. um, Whenever you start something new or try to do something different, the old adage is true that it's the pioneers who get the arrows in the back. Whenever you try and break out and say, you know, maybe if, if the size of our God really is big, and we really dream these big dreams and try these huge things, just maybe, and you kind of run out there on a limb and start charging that way, um, the pioneer is the one who gets the arrows in the back. And so I'm sure we're going to get a lot of comments about, oh, this is stupid, why are we doing this? Um, That's okay. I feel like we have to do this. When we started this church, my wife reminded me this. She said, Ken, you used to always say that your dream was to have a church where after two or three years of being at that church, it was as if somebody had a seminary degree. I mean, I, I'm really, I get really torqued. I mean, I'm really bugged when churches settle to just talk about um, on Sunday mornings or in their educational things, reminders to be good. So you come to church every week and it's just, hey, be good. Um, don't go into debt. Um, make sure you, you wave at people. Uh, we all want to be good. We don't need reminders. We need more than that. Non-Christians, you know, can use reminders to be good. Oprah does that every day. It's wonderful. But church ought to do something more. It's called to something noble. It, it should train and it should teach and it should educate so that after you've been there for, for a while, you, you get it, you know, you've learned, you're excited, you're, you're hungry, you're thirsty. You can go back to that word education and see it in that first definition that it's all about continuing to grow and to flourish as I pursue virtue and spiritual growth and become the person God intended for me be, the, the person that I have the potential to be. And I, I just can't stand it when churches, and we're not perfect, and I'm sure we do it a lot too, but when we settle for a low bar and just encourage people to be good, we're not doing justice to the image of God in people, to the rationality that people have, to the ability and the potential that they have, not to just sit there like Plato and take it from someone else, but to learn themselves so that they can then go and teach others, so that they can be empowered, so that they're not dependent on leaders or anything like that. I mean, that's the potential that exists. Jesus didn't stick around after three years. Why? One, he was dead, but, but I mean, he raised again. But seriously, he'd done his work. Why didn't he just stick around? He didn't need to. He'd passed on what he needed to pass on, and it was okay for him to leave and leave it to us. And a church that can't say, hey, in three years' time, maybe we can do what Jesus did, or we're not Jesus, maybe six years' time or something like that. But we can pass on to people what they need so that they can go and do it. Um, That's the calling. And so Tamara was just reminding me about that. Ken, you always said... Uh, that you wanted to have a church where if people came for several years, it was as if they had a seminary degree. That's what I would want. If I'm going to invest the kind of time, teach me something. Like I said, we're not perfect. But this college, the idea of it, 
is that it would then help undergird the whole adult education arm of this church. That you can go to a class on Thursday night or Wednesday night and spend 16 weeks in it or 12 weeks in it and really dive deep into some subjects that are going to get you just fired up about the Christian tradition, your own faith, the possibilities for missions, what church could look like, how you can teach other people or your own kids. I don't know about you guys, but I, I can't, I hate getting asked questions by my kids. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm in that stage where I'm getting nailed by all these questions that are really tough to answer. And I'm like, you know, Mary Joy, call Rick Gerhardt. <laughs> Rick will answer that one for you. I, wanna, I want to be able to better raise my kids. And I think I, kn- I know that you guys want that too. In the book of Proverbs, we'll just close with this. The book of Proverbs gives itself a vision at the beginning, which is fascinating. It kind of says why it was written. And, and listen to what it says. It says, This book is for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, for doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. Education is not just for elementary kids or college kids. It says, let the wise listen and add to their learning. The word philosophy comes from two Greek words, meaning the love of wisdom. A lot of these things that feel ivory tower to us and kind of distant and they don't have much meaning or relevance. If we go back and look at the rich tradition, they were aimed at your life, your potential, the growth and the maturity and the wisdom that can come from applying ourselves to knowledge. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do want to follow you and what's right and true, and, and we're never going to get it perfect. But I just pray that the commitment to this church would be to always seek it out like north on a compass or north star or whatever. That we would never settle. We would always be willing to question ourselves. We'd be able to have enough humility to be wrong when we're wrong. But that our passions for the things that you're passionate about would always remain true. Our passion for truth as well as beauty, our passion for meaning, as well as adventure. And Father, I just pray a blessing on the endeavors, the, the, the college that the elders got behind, it's just that you would take that and carry it and open up doors for it and bless it. And that through that structure, that apparatus, that, that system, that school, that lives would be touched, lives would be changed, people would be able to grow up attain wisdom and knowledge and discernment. So Father, we pray for it, just that you would keep your hand on it in Christ's name.